listeners, here's the last of our 2023 bonus episodes, and yes, I'm perfectly well aware that it's already 2024, but in my mind, they tack on to the end of Season 5 rather than heading up Season 6 of Queen of the Sciences. Anyway, this is one last pair of stories from Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold, my all-time bestseller, extravagantly given away in audio format on my new podcast, Sarah Henley Key Wilson Stories. Pearly Gates is almost done, but more stories will be coming on this new podcast, so subscribe now and you won't miss a thing. And now, on with the shows. Welcome to Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories, for people who need good fiction and good theology at the same time. I'm Sarah. Until I came to today's story, Camel, I didn't realize I'm a little obsessed with camels. There's no real good reason why. I have never lived in a region populous with camels. I have a very vague memory of riding a camel at the zoo when I was four or five years old, but the memory is so hazy that, for all I know, it might have been an elephant. Or both. Or two separate occasions. There is something weirdly endearing about camels. Maybe it's easier to feel that way if you don't have to deal with them. They have such funny faces and ungainly bodies, yet move with an odd rhythmic grace of their own. But probably the main reason they keep popping up in the things I write is simply because of Jesus' wonderfully evocative image of the camel trying to pass through the eye of the needle. I've heard, probably you have too, that the eye of the needle may refer to a gate in the city wall of Jerusalem. Heavily loaded transport camels had to be unloaded before they could slip through that narrow gate, making it a perfect symbol of the divestment of worldly wealth. Whatever the exact source, it's still a great image. All three synoptic gospels report it. Matthew gives Jesus one other camel reference. Jesus there criticizes the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees as, quote, blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, end quote. Another evocative and insightful image to describe anyone who massively misses the point. Well, anyway, a few years ago, I wrote a hymn based on the Beatitudes using the tune from a Tanzanian Easter hymn that I love. That was just as innocent as it sounds. But one day, humming it to myself, I had the horrifying realization that instead of singing, blessed are they, in my mind, I was actually singing, wretched are they. I'm sure that was some kind of Freudian slip. Maybe I should have left well enough alone, but that got me thinking about, for lack of a better term, the woeitudes that Jesus also utters. And then a whole second hymn spilled out. A hymn, might I add, that no one should actually sing in church. I apologize in advance for my modest singing abilities, but here's the verse with the camel in it. Blind guides and vipers, wretched are they, closing the kingdom and blocking the way. Say the oath-takers are wretched too, slandering temple and stealing God's due. Nat strainers swallowing camels unknown, greedy, indulgent, and full of dead bones. Wretched are those who shun Christ today, wretched how wretched, so wretched are they. If you are so moved by this exercise in anti-piety that you desire to see the rest, I'll link it in the show notes. You can also get the real hymn based on the Beatitudes in the same place. A more felicitous use of the camel image came to me more recently. I was thinking of a great little drawing my son made of the camel going through the eye of the needle, literally through a needle, and I wanted to put words to it. 
So I pulled out the possibly true story of the Gate of Jerusalem, and this time borrowed a tune not from the Tanzanian church, but from Chuck Berry. I won't even attempt to sing that here, but if you want to sing along to the tune of Johnny Be Good, you'll get the proper effect. I won't read the lyrics out here so it doesn't spoil the surprise of how the song unfolds, but if you follow the link in the show notes, you'll get both the drawing and the song. And then, last but not least, here's today's stories from Pearly Gates, Camel. What exactly does it take to divest a rich man from his many possessions? What is strong enough to battle covetousness? Let's find out. Camel. The apostle could already see it approaching from a long ways off. What it was, at first, she could not make out. She squinted and stared. Only once it had come quite close could she make sense of its massive size and perplexing shape. It was a great concatenation of stuff. Every imaginable thing under the sun, bolted, glued, or stuck together. Clothes hangers, clothes pins, and clothes to go on them. Cars, crates, and cranes. Appliances and artworks. Boats and bathtubs. Handkerchiefs and houses. Jewels and jets. Surrounding, enveloping, and trailing after the chain of stuff was packaging, wrappers, acres of tangled tape, and caught inside of that, no end of used-up, worn-down, tossed-out stuff. The whole assemblage was as tall as the heavenly city itself, and shook the firmament beneath it as it clumped right up to the gates. The apostle watched with interest as the lump of stuff finally reached her. It was much too large to get in. It had no head, no face, no arms, but evidently it wanted to enter. Undeterred by the narrow gate, it heaved itself against the wall of the city. The lump shook, the firmament shook, but the walls of the city remained unmoved. The lump backed up and flung itself against the gate once more. The tremendous vibration that it sent backward through itself made chunks of the garbage go flying off to the sides. Somewhere in the ether they vanished. The lump redoubled its efforts and once again assaulted the city. Still the city stood immovable. The shock detached a number of larger articles at the lump's edges and margins. This seemed to infuriate the lump. Again it threw itself against the city, again and again and again. The more its own body broke and shattered, the greater violence with which it turned to its attack. On it went. Other apostles gathered to watch. In another kind of time, eons might have passed. Until, at last, there was nothing left to shatter away and the tiny life inside its massive shell crawled free from the debris all around. It was a person, so thin and slight, as to be hardly visible. The person crawled forward to the portal of the gate and kissed the gleaming pearl. So long, he gasped, so long have I carried that weight and never till now did I find anything hard enough to break me free. 
praise and honor and glory to these walls, these immovable walls, these firm foundations, these unrelenting stones. Glory upon them that have set me free. I know what better deserves your praise, and I will show you the way, said the apostle. And she led him into the city. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Camel from Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold. If you'd like to hold a paper copy in your hands, visit thornbushpress.com or the online retailer of your choice. You can also listen to all the stories right now by getting the audiobook from the same sources. Support my efforts to create good fiction and good theology at the same time on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson. But above all, please tell a friend about the show. Welcome to Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories for people who need good fiction and good theology at the same time. I'm Sarah. So here's an uncomfortable pattern in the New Testament, comparing the Lord Jesus to a thief. The comparison is made very indirectly in Matthew 24, 43 and Luke 12, 39, but those with ears to hear can't fail to make the connection. 2 Peter 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.2 both talk about the day of the Lord arriving like a thief. It's in fact the 1 Thessalonians version that gives us the very common English phrase of like a thief in the night. The book of Revelation blasts past these indirections and allusions by having Jesus say flat out, I will come like a thief, that's at 3.3, and behold, I am coming like a thief, 16.15. So the sinless one, the just judge, and God's own embodied righteousness is a thief. What gives? Let's start with this. Sin is complicated and not always easy to assess correctly. One of the chief charges against Jesus in his own day and age was that he was a blasphemer, violating the first and most foundational of all commandments by making himself out to be equal with God. Of course, if he was in fact equal with God, that wouldn't be a violation. But who and what he actually was remained a matter of dispute. It still does. Jesus was acclaimed as one who comes in the name of the Lord. Is this the right use of the Lord's name? Or is it taking that holy name in vain? Jesus was also regularly accused of Sabbath violations. The only way he'd be innocent of that is if he was, in fact, the Lord of the Sabbath, restoring the Sabbath to its right observance. But how do you know whether he is or not? These accusations revolve around the first table of the commandments, the ones that pertain to God. They all hinge on his true identity. Get that right, and the problem resolves itself. But what about the second table of the law regarding others? Here, too, it's tricky and problematic. And let me add right up front, not least of all, because in our day and age, to admit that seems to give license to anyone to violate these commandments and still claim divine blessing. I can't solve that misuse of the law here. Let me just leave it at this. You are not Jesus. Case closed. But back to Jesus. Even with the second table of the law, it's a mixed bag. Does he honor his father and his mother? When he spent three days hanging out in the temple while his parents were frantically searching for him, they probably didn't think so. When he said that whoever does the will of God is his real mother and brother and sister, they probably didn't think so then either. 
But in Acts 1, we learn that both Jesus' mother and his brothers counted among the disciples praising God for his resurrection. So what looked like a violation was a higher obedience to his heavenly father, which ultimately did benefit his earthly mother and the rest of his family. With the next two commandments, we seem to be in the clear. There isn't the slightest reason to think that Jesus ever killed anybody or committed adultery or any other sexual misdeed. I admit to being very glad about that. I can see my way around the others, but violations here would be very hard to rationalize away. Still, there is some discomfort, at least at the edges. Jesus asks his followers to be willing to lose their lives on his account. Now that is definitely not murder, but it's also not making the perdurance of bodily life the highest good. And while Jesus certainly judges adultery and divorce harshly, his willingness to bless and speak with prostitutes and other women of questionable moral character must have seemed like a certain wobbliness on that commandment. What about slander? If the commandment is only against false witness, then presumably Jesus is in the clear, for he knew the truth of people. And technically speaking, slander is only telling untruths about people, not truths they'd prefer not to let get known in public. But I'm sure it sounded like Jesus was slandering people left, right, and center. Revisit episode 17 for my woeitudes hymn giving place to every last one of Jesus' personal attacks. And that leads us to the far end of the second table of the law with the prohibitions on coveting. Here also, Jesus seems to be entirely in the clear. His earthly life was one of giving away and letting go. He didn't even grasp at the form of God that he was entitled to, as the hymn in Philippians 2 tells us. Which brings us now back to theft. This is the one sin of the second table of the commandments that calls forth those repeated comparisons to the Lord, especially with regard to his second coming. Now note that the chief point is the sneakiness, unexpectedness, and undercoverness of his arrival, like one who doesn't want to be caught until he's done his deed. None of these allusions actually speak of Jesus taking anything. The theft part is left out of the thief. And yet, maybe the comparison is more apt than these specific uses suggest. Because what, in the end, is Jesus' act of redemption but stealing us out of our prisons and enslavements? The church has always preached proudly of Jesus despoiling the devil, binding up the strong man Beelzebub, and robbing death and Hades of their prey. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, whether or not the world or us want our sins to be taken away. Jesus robs the rich man of his illusions, and the woman caught in adultery of her guilt. If anything, it seems like Jesus has to rob us of quite a lot of our proud possessions before he can place in our hands what we should really hang on to. That's the theme of today's story, Thief. Here the Lord is precisely what he's accused of being. Thief. Now wait just one minute, said the woman. She was patting her cloak down, hands diving into pockets. The Lord waited, quietly, passing no comment on the fact that her foot was halfway over the jeweled foundation, her toe just touching down in the holy city. Where is it? She looked up at him with dismayed and clouded eyes. What do you seek? he asked. My... she stopped. Somehow she didn't like to say... Ah, he said. He fished into his own pocket and drew something forth. It was ugly. That was the only thing that could be said with certainty about it. 
It seemed to be mostly the color of rust, rough textured and misshapen, but with a suggestion that it had once been something whole, lovely, and useful. It would not have been so terrible had it not seemed so mangled from its now unidentifiable original shape. Yet the woman did not look upon it with disgust. Relief flooded her face. She smiled up at the Lord. I should have known you'd have it in safekeeping, she breathed, reaching out for it with both hands. But the Lord dropped it into his pocket again. I did take it from you, he agreed, but not for safekeeping. Rather, to release you from its claim and put the thing to death. To death? shrieked the woman. But you are the Lord of life. You don't take life, you give it. How could you even think of killing this poor thing? She reached out again as though for a wounded animal. It is not this thing that needs to live, but you, said the Lord, and you cannot live as long as it lives with you. It is much heavier than you think. She saw his hand move toward the pocket again. She perceived the power in that hand, the power to crush the ugly, rusty, mangled mess into oblivion. You are a liar, she said, and a thief. One who has lived long with falsehood has a hard time recognizing truth, the Lord said. But I will admit to being a thief. I have plundered many others before you of their treasured weights and chains. My life is stronger than these things, but yours is not. I want it back, she said. It has been your sin, said the Lord. If you take it back, it will become your death. Better to let me keep it. But I love it, wept the woman. I love it. I have loved it so long. It has never loved you. At this the woman's sad face was riven by something like a passing thunderstorm, but as with a storm, it cleared. In the quiet that followed, she murmured, No, it has never loved me. Come in, said the Lord, gesturing through the gate. May I, said the woman softly, but with new strength, may I see you do what you do to it? You may, he replied, but it will hurt. Not as much as carrying it. The woman turned her palms toward her face. She perceived how they were covered with deep scratches, seething and infected. The Lord withdrew the thing from his pocket. It seemed to shrink in his hand, yet grew tougher, angrier, as if preparing for a fight but the Lord simply closed his fist around it, and it was gone. That was so easy, exclaimed the woman, delighted. Only, said the Lord, because you had stopped loving it. But I would not have stopped loving it, she countered, if you had not first stolen it from me. Come in now, said the Lord. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Thief from Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold. If you'd like a paper copy to hold in your hands, visit thornbushpress.com or the online retailer of your choice. You can also listen to all the stories right now by getting the audiobook from the same sources. 
Support my efforts to create good fiction and good theology at the same time on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson. But above all, please tell a friend about the show. Thank you.